All right, so we are continuing, obviously, in our study of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 4, and we are uh, on the downhill slope to wrap up the study of Genesis chapter 4 in, our, in the second half of this chapter. Of course, we're, we're titling the whole study A Portrait of Life in a Fallen World, because obviously, when you get to Genesis chapter 3, you start to see that um, things have changed. Of course, we experience that every day of our lives, but in the flow of the historical narrative here in Genesis... Um, we start to see this portrait of what life is starting to look like in a fallen world unfold for us. And of course, we spent a number of weeks um, in the first half of Genesis chapter 4, really looking at the two individuals that are, um, that are really contrasted there, two individuals who are real figures, real historical characters as sons of Adam and, Adam and Eve in, in the form of Cain and Abel, but also representatives of two greater societies, the society of the unrighteous and the society of the righteous, the society of Cain and the society of Abel. And we talked about that at length, and we made the point that there is really no middle ground between these two societies. There are common experiences, but there's no point of neutrality between the two. Um, We moved on in our study, obviously, to the second half, and really what we see in the second half of Genesis chapter 4 is a lot of the same uh, principal uh, truths coming out in the sense that you have this comparison of two societies, but really it's broadened, the view is broadened to really look at um, cultural implications, or it's a, a broader picture in, in that it's not just looking at two individuals, but it's looking at the emergence of the societies that they uh, propagate through their offspring. And really we see toward the end of chapter 4, we see Seth emerging onto the scene as a replacement for Abel, if you will, in terms of the representative of the Society of the Righteous. We looked a little bit last week at this contrast that you see between this, this society, even the secular society, uh, that's unfolding here in Genesis chapter 4, a contrast between that, as we see in Genesis, versus what we see um, propagated in secular anthropology and evolutionary models of the, the development of man. And we, we saw that massive contrast um, by just looking at what Genesis talks about versus what uh, a more secular uh, evolutionary model of anthropology would, would tell us. And the contrast couldn't be more stark. Um, before we get to that, though, let's read uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 to 25, and we'll review some of those contrasts, and then we'll kind of move forward into the rest of the, the study here. Chapter 4, verse 16, verse, uh, um, chapter 4, 16 through 25 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also, 
a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So as I said, last week we spent a bit of time contrasting this evolutionary model of man's development with what we see here in the text in Genesis chapter 4. And really what you see in an evolutionary model is this excruciatingly slow progress over millions and millions and millions of years. That's sort of the model of man's evolution. That's the model of man's development of intelligence and subsequent developments of culture and technology and so forth. So we, we highlighted from beginning to walk on two legs, hunched over, to walking upright on two legs, four million years. That's how long it took. From walking upright on two legs to beginning to use very primitive, primitive stone tools for crushing and cutting things, 1.4 million years. That's how long it took to get from one thing to the next. From the use of these tools to the ability to control fire for warmth, cooking, and socializing, 1.8 million years. Now, Hearing that fact alone ought to alert everybody to how bogus this is, how completely unrealistic this is. Because all of us know, if we were honest, that it would never, ever, ever take 1.8 million years for man to develop the ability to have s'mores around a campfire, right? I mean, to go from one thing to controlling fire, I mean, I mean that's got to be evidence in and of itself. Well, even still, that's still too long to get from that to making s'mores, don't you think? I mean, 100,000 years. So anyway, we're moving, we're moving forward in time, and it's, it's taking forever and ever and ever to get to the, the point of sophisticated human intellect and capability. So another uh, point from this model said that it took uh, another 800,000 years, almost 800,000 years, to go from things like controlling fire, to farming and herding and bringing of animals. So, you know, more modern-day capabilities for um, cultivating food and, and the breeding of animals and, and uh, hus- animal husbandry and so forth. So that took almost another 800 years. The bottom line in all that is that regardless of how you, where, wherever you put the, the, the timeline, it's vastly longer than what Scripture tells us, vastly longer. When you look at the Genesis account, what you see is about 1,600 years from... Adam to the flood. And you have what you have to assume is this pre-flood environment where it's really conducive toward man's uh, advancement. And if you understand what it must have been like to be created in the image of God and not have suffered the full unfolding effects of a corrupt environment and atmosphere and the effects of a cataclysmic um, environment and a place where uh, weather patterns have changed and the the obstacles of just nature itself make life difficult and challenging and affect things physiologically, affect human life physiologically, on and on it goes. You combine that with human intelligence and being image bearers of God, and you see, uh, the, and you combine that with long lifespans. We talked about how um, the lifespans were immensely long and how, how kind of cool it would be to think if you, know, if you could practice at something for like 900 years. That'd be, you might be able to get good at something, right? So you have these long lifespans that were taking place. And so what you see here in, in chapter 4 is um, these builder, they're builders of cities. So you, you have some, some measure of architecture and design that had to be taking place there, um, presumably. You have uh, developments in agriculture and animal, animal husbandry that are referenced. You have the creation of music and musical instruments. 
So you're, you're talking about a, a culture that is not anything closely resembling what modern, secular, anthropological models would, would tell us. Not even close. I mean, it's not even, regardless of what, where you put the timelines for different things in the evolutionary model. This is a very, very different uh, picture of man's development and the development of society and culture. You have developments of, in metallurgy, the forging of all instruments of bronze and iron. So you have, you have what is really an advanced culture. You have an, an intelligent culture. You have a highly communicable culture. You have interdependencies of relationship. You have commerce. You have all these things that are taking place in the early um, development and uh, progress of man on the earth. Nevertheless, we also talked about how it was certainly a secular culture. However, we also mentioned that this culture demonstrates or um, exemplifies for us the presence of God's common grace, of God manifesting and, 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 and un- unleashing, really, common grace on all mankind. We talked about how common grace refers to the grace of God that is common to all humankind. It is common because its benefits are experienced by the whole human race without distinction between one person and another, believers or unbelievers. And it is grace because it is undeserved and sovereignly bestowed by God. In this sense, it is distinguished from special or saving grace, which extends only to those whom God has chosen to redeem. So you have this, this evidence of God's common grace because you, you have to know that as, as um, places, you know, places for dwellings and advancements in uh, farming and agriculture and animal husbandry and the, the development of building implements and tools and weaponry and the, the emergence of the creative arts and the, the joy of music and celebrating with music and all the things that you would think about that would encompass a culture or society that has these elements or these components in it were commonly enjoyed and commonly shared by all. Believer, unbeliever, righteous, unrighteous. It was part of God's common grace and the outworking of the image of God in man in this early society. Uh, Calvin said this about this particular section of Scripture as it relates to common grace. He said, The sons of Cain, though deprived of the spirit of regeneration, were yet endued with gifts of no despicable kind, just as the experience of all ages teaches us how widely the rays of divine light have shone on unbelieving nations for the benefit of the present life. And we see at the present time that the excellent gifts of the Spirit are diffused through the whole human race. Moreover, the liberal arts and sciences have descended to us from the heathen. We are indeed compelled to acknowledge that we have received astronomy and other parts of philosophy, medicines, and and the order of civil government from them. Nor is it to be doubted that God has thus liberally enriched them with excellent favors that their impiety might have less excuse. But while we admire the riches of his favor which he has bestowed on them, let us still value far more highly that grace of regeneration which he uh, peculiarly sanctifies his elect unto himself. So there's sort of Calvin's commentary on this section of scripture as it relates to this this. Um, outpouring, really, of God's common grace, even amongst a society of God-rejectors. There's also a restraining element. We talked a little bit about this last week. A restraining element that's uh, a part of God's common grace. Common grace restrains sin and the effects of sin on the human race. 
Common grace is what keeps humanity from descending into the morass of evil that we would see if the full expression of our fallen nature were allowed to have free reign. So there's a restraining uh, element there of God's common grace. But it begs the question, I think, for us, and I think it's a, a good question for us to, to really look at from Scripture, why? Why common grace? Why would God continue to bestow upon those who persistently reject Him and blaspheme His name, who blaspheme the gracious gifts, who they give, God gives them the gracious gifts of intelligence and special skills, uh, artistic genius, the benefit or blessing of marriage and family, of friendship, the enjoyment of the earth and all its riches. Why do you think would God do that? There's, there's a number of reasons. I've come up with five. There's certainly more, but I, I came up with five. But I'm just curious as to what comes to mind when you think of that question. Why common grace? He's bestowing upon his creation those things which are beneficial to his creation, irrespective of those that are elected or chosen mm-hmm. to have eternal life. It's, but it's still, and he loves his creation. Okay, so it's uh, it's a it's a it's an out outpouring of his love. I, that's that was my first one. It's part of his character. Part of his nature. That's exactly right. That's the first one I came up with. Common grace affirms that grace is part of the essence of God's very nature and character. He is a God of grace. Peter calls him in 1 Peter 5, the God of all grace. It's like, it's like his essence is to be gracious. For him to not be this way for, would be for him to not be himself as God. Psalm 145, 8-9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Just who He is. Just how He operates in His nature. And James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Another reference to His very nature, what He is like. So, in, in a sense, common grace, as we see it manifested all over the planet, amongst the believing and the unbelieving alike, what we see on display is the very nature and character and essence of God as a God of all grace. So, even in and of itself, even in, in that very principle alone, it is a cause for those who truly know Him in special grace to worship Him all the more, when you see the benevolent grace of God being poured out so widely in this way. Any other reasons? Um, could it be that, you know, since, since God's foreordaining, you know, all those that, um, all of his elect throughout, you know, kind of the corridors of time, that, you know, if, if there was no common grace and he just kind of took his hands off, that, you know, the, the world wouldn't sustain itself uh, uh, until, you know, all those people had the opportunity yeah, no, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's necessary, basically, is what you're saying, as right. part of God's plan. Yeah, because if, if there were no common grace, and, and we were left to, you know, like you said, the full kind of downward spiral of the depravity of man, and, you know, the world just, you know, destroyed each other. Cave in on itself, yeah. Right, that, uh, you know, he's, he's preordained the, you know, the length of 
time that it's going to take for all those people that, you know, whose who's numbers um, yeah. to come to saving faith. That's good. That's good. I don't have that one, so... You get a special gold star or something. I don't know. There's got to be something. This is a this is a t- classroom. Surely we can find some kind of special reward. Uh, let's see. We'll put you on green. I think the green wheel over there. No, that's good. Yeah, I mean you have to. Th- that's part of his plan. It's tied into his eternal purposes and his sovereign decree. Um, and it's it's a, if if you if you assume the the the. Um, the logical effect of completely unrestrained sin, it's a, it's a self-destructive endgame. Yeah, it's a self-destructive endgame. So. Okay, any other, any other ideas about why? What are some reasons why? And think of, think of Scripture. Think of what we know from Scripture about the grace of God and in, in particular God's common grace and some of the reasons why we would, we would experience this and see this and observe this. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, let's see. Um, that's number four for me. Number four, um, common grace, and, and this is the, this is the context of that passage. Common grace motivates the believer's love for his or her neighbor and his or her enemy. The context there is Matthew chapter five, verses forty-three to forty-eight. It says, "You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So the context of that is the motivation of the believer to love neighbor and enemy. Neighbor being not necessarily believer, but just neighbor. And we talked about how, we made this point, we were drawing this contrast between the society of Cain and the society of Abel. You know, we've got to be careful. We don't have this us versus them mentality in drawing this distinction because we are called, they are our neighbors. Unbelievers are our neighbors, and we're called to love our neighbors. And then, even further, as Jesus says, to love our enemies. And this idea of common grace, Jesus raises it up as a motivation for loving neighbor and loving enemy. So as we observe God's manifest blessings of grace upon all, it's not a cause for resentment. It's a cause for being motivated to love. Okay, any others? I think uh, God's kindness leads men to repentance. Okay, so... Okay, so uh, what, are you, what are you referencing there? Do you have a particular scripture in mind? Yeah, okay, so I think, I think we're on the same track then. Let me, let's see if this is getting at what you're thinking. Um, let's see, grace, a common grace seals man's culpability for sin. So in Romans, it talks about this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And so it does produce that comprehensive culpability and can be a means by which uh, people are um, led to repentance and forgiveness. It, it removes the excuse. That's right. Everyone is culpable before God, no matter what. 
And, and Romans highlights this, this common knowledge of his divine nature, part of that being his grace. It's been made known and made clear. Any others? Any other thoughts on common grace and why? Why, we would, why God would extend his hand this way in such kindness to the unbelieving and to the rejecters of him, the haters of God? It affirms his nature. We talked about that. His, he's a God of grace. It uh, seals man's culpability. It motivates the believer's love for his neighbor and enemy. Got a couple more. How about um, common grace amplifies the image of God in man? It amplifies it. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your uh, glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, you have, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So common grace is one way that the image of God in man is magnified. Now, of course, we know that it is the tendency of secular society or unbelievers to press that down and to claim glory and credit for themselves. But nonetheless, it is a persistent, persistent uh, presence in the conscience of man of, of being created in his image. And the other one I have is that common grace... Uh, let's see. Common grace magnifies the blessing of saving grace. When you think about common grace and then you start really contemplating saving grace and the extent to which that goes for the unbeliever, it should cause great gratitude and worship amongst his, his people. Colossians 1, 15-22 says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So it should be cause for great worship as we observe God's common grace, and then we just take that like about a billion steps further to think about his special grace and redeeming us when we were unworthy and sinful. Now, there can be a, a stumbling block, though. If common grace is so good, why do I need special grace? Who needs God? Uh, I'll, Certainly. I'll go out and worship in the, uh, His creation, yeah. and that's enough. And certainly that is the boast of many in secular society. In fact, I think, I'm, I think I've got that here. Let's get. Let's move on. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. I've been reading your 
You have. I mean, every time. It's, it's one of you two that's always reading my, my notes. I think you've hacked my iPad or something. But no, I, I, I do think we're going to talk about that a little bit down in, in, the, in the study. Because um, we're really going to look at more of the characteristics of secular society. And, and that's, that's part of it. So in addition to the fact that this emerging um, secular society stands in stark contrast to the common sort of secular anthropological models of human development, and in addition to the fact that uh, we see this, this, this evidence of God's tremendous grace that is common to all, not, not special grace, but common grace, we see that manifested here. Um, I want to look at a few more of these um, characteristics of this emerging secular society as we kind of continue to look at this portrait of life in a fallen world. So the next one I want us to kind of talk about just for a moment is this, this, this truth, this reality that we see here exemplified in the text, that secular society is inhabited by settled wanderers. Settled wanderers. Now, verse 16 of chapter 4 says that then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. So this word Nod, this this word is it's a, a word that means wanderer or exile or fugitive. So he settled in the land of wandering. He, he's a settled wanderer. And in fact it harkens back to what God said to him that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Some commentators say that this is another evidence of his, his utter rebellion and hard-heartedness toward God because he's deciding instead of to wander, he's deciding to settle and build a city, right? But in reality, the word itself is a word that means wanderer or exile. And some even say that it might not even be an actual place. Some commentators say it might not even be an actual place, but it just means that wherever he went... It could be called the land of the wanderer based upon God's, God's um, punishment and judgment of him. But any, at any rate, Cain's punishment in becoming a wanderer and a fugitive was to really lose his sense of true belonging. He, he, he's, a, he's a wanderer. The secular society is inhabited by people who, no matter what it looks like, no matter how settled they are, they're wandering. They're, they're, they're aimless. They're, they're lost at heart. That's, the, that's really a true principle of, we, we call, what do we call unbelievers? Lost. We, 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 we term them the lost. And so this is a, a good, vivid image of this in this text. Augustine from his confession says it this way, And man wants to praise you, man who is only a small portion of what you have created, and who goes about carrying with him his own mortality, the evidence of his sin, and evidence that you resist the proud. Yet still man, this small portion of creation, wants to praise you. You stimulate him to take pleasure in praising you, because you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That last portion is probably one of the most famous Augustine quotes. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So this just points to the principle of what it means to be an inhabitant, a true fully established inhabitant of secular society, of unredeemed society. You're talking about people who are lost, and it serves us well to remember that. Because what we also know is that unbelievers are not inclined to go around with signs on them saying, I'm lost. They're not inclined to have conversations in coffee shops and restaurants or in the cul-de-sac of your neighborhood 
belaboring the point of how aimless and wandering their souls feel. What does secular society, what does worldliness force us or compel us to do but to pursue pleasure and to pursue satisfaction in the things of the world and to build houses and buy cars and pursue careers and do all these things on this sort of this treadmill of temporal life all in an effort to bring peace, to find a home, to find rest, to find a settling place for our soul, and yet it's never to be found. And, and we can, I think, easily look around us and we can see people around us and we think that they're okay. They, they look okay. They seem okay. Nice house, live in a great neighborhood, kids look all right, everybody's healthy, nice career. But this is a good reminder for us that people who are not redeemed are lost and they're wandering. That's, that's the essence of who they are. And they may be settled but they're still wandering. And that's the, that's the essence of Cain here and his offspring in secular society. Isaiah 26.3 says, you keep, him perfect, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So the opposite, the contrast is the believing. When you look at how Scripture describes those who, are, who belong to Christ, it is often attributed to this Presence of what? Peace, right? So if, if the believer is redeemed and brought into peace with God, what do we know is the opposite for the unbelieving. It's not peace. It's turmoil. It's separation. It's lostness. Again, John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And again, toward the end of his earthly ministry in life, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you have those inhabitants of this secular society who are in this troubled world and facing the same kinds of effects of the fall and sinful actions and reactions of people and the corruption of our flesh and the the thorns and thistles of carving out an existence, they're facing all that, but they're facing it completely absent of this peace that Christ promises to the believing. That's, that's their existence. That's their world. That's their life. They are settled wanderers, and we would do well to remember that. Another characteristic we see of the secular society here in Genesis chapter 4, is that the monuments of secular society are monuments to secular society. So, verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So, building a city, building monuments, whatever it might be. I mean, you can make it a city, you can make it a business, you can make it whatever. But the aim of secular society is to build monuments that pay homage to secular society in some way, as opposed to the believer who is to, whether he eats or drinks, do all of the glory of God, whatever things we build, whatever, whatever accomplishments we have, it's all to redound to the goodness and grace and glory of God. But in secular society, it's the monuments that are built to secular society itself. By the way, does anybody have a problem with the fact that Cain had a wife, and I mean, we need to talk about that at all. Like his wife was 
a sister or a close relative? I mean, I'm I'm good with it. It's a little disturbing because it really doesn't spend much time about Adam and Eve having daughters. Right. They did. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, what you see over and over again. What'd you say? Well, there is that. What do you mean didn't? Oh, wait, did I say, is that being recorded? I didn't say that. I mean, of course they count. They count now for sure. Um, but no, yeah, I mean, the, the point, and we've t- talked about this over and over again, how in the narrative here, you know, there's, the, there's, a, there's points to be made. There's emphases that are being highlighted here. And certainly, it's, it's true of, of really almost any historical narrative. I mean, not every single detail is captured. Right? It's not chronicled like that, and certainly that's the case here. But I don't want to belabor that point. It's just one of those areas where, you know, uh, that's where a lot of people would call out, you know, this is impossible that it could be true because, you know, where did Cain's wife come from? Well, he came from the loins of Adam and Eve. I mean, that's where. So, okay, just thought I'd point that out. So, anyway, um, so the, the passage tells us that Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and, and when he built the city, he called it by its name. So a monument to the name Enoch is just, a, to me, a, a representation of building monuments that are monuments made by secular society that pay homage to secular society. Yes? Kind of like all these old sports stadiums, and you named after these other yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm not saying that it's bad to have something, you know, if, you, if, if somebody, you know, names something after someone in honor of them, I'm not making some kind of massive statement about how things get named. I mean, you know, you'll have someone will name a, a building or something out of somebody as a point of honor. But really, we're talking about the heart and character of, of what's happening here more than anything else, more than the monument itself. I mean, God calls... Uh, his people to build altars, for example, but the altars are not to say, look what you accomplished. You crossed the sea. Look what you did. Here, build an altar on the other side of the sea. Good job, people of Israel. Way to go. No, it's not, that's, the, that's not the point of the altar, right, for, the, for God's people. But in, in a secular society, all the monuments, all the buildings, all the accomplishments are oriented toward magnifying the society and the people who are building it. That's the point here. And glorifying their accomplishments, no doubt. It's a matter of relationship. What they're doing is they're replacing the relationship with God right. with the, re- the Creator. That's right. With the created. That's right. They're replacing their relationship with the created, the cities. It's part of that great exchange that you see in Romans 1. They, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for created things. It's the same principle going on there. We would do well to hear the, the words of Jeremiah in chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Well, next, we see that secular society pursues ways to normalize and even boast in wickedness. And we see this in the account of Lamech, verses 19 to 23. We say that again, secular society pursues ways to normalize and even boast in wickedness. Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives, boom, polygamy. So already, 
an abomination of the covenant relationship of marriage. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. And in verse 23, so you've got polygamy, so you've got the, an abomination of the relationship of marriage. And now we get to verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So you have not only polygamy introduced, an abomination of the covenant relationship of marriage by Lamech, then you have Lamech committing murder and then boasting about it. Because he's saying, he's, he's hearkening back to what God told um, um, Cain in chapter 4, verse 15, when Cain was concerned that you know, he was going to be hunted for this murder of Abel, and he was fearful of his life, and, and God put a, a protection on him, and it said, he said, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Well, Lamech says, if that's his, then mine's going to be seventy-sevenfold. How about them apples? So there's a boasting in wickedness. And I couldn't help but think, again, of Romans chapter 1 toward the end of that passage, starting in verse 26. For this reason, because they, because they did not honor him as God, because they saw all that he had made and did not honor him as God, but made this exchange, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for created things, it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And this is what it means to occupy secular society. So it's, it's, it, it, it begs the question for us, how are, we, how are we responding to the realities of the society in which we live, the secular society in which we live? Do we look around and do we see unbelievers as lost wanderers? Do we see them as those who need the love and grace of God in their lives? Do we see them as those we need to minister to and evangelize? Or... Do we see them as like us? They live next door, houses look similar, got a decent job, kids are okay. You see what I'm saying? We can get sucked into the air that we breathe as inhabitants of this world that we live in. And we can become, in our thinking, if not in our actions, much like the society that we live in. And we can fail to see around us settled wanderers. And it's also a caution to us we can very easily get caught up in boasting in the wrong things. 
And whether we say it out loud or not, and believe me, I know that we all, many of us, if not all of us, we, we probably know the, the lexicon of churchese and Christianese, right? We know kind of how to talk about God and Christianity and our walk and all that kind of thing. But really, this kind of stuff gets at the heart level of our motivations, what's really motivating us day in and day out, moment in and moment out. And I think it's very easy for us to be motivated by the things of this world, especially when it comes to the accomplishments we're pursuing, what we believe our life is to consist of day by day and what we're pursuing. And it's very easy for us to look very much like secular society in that we begin to build monuments to ourselves. The monuments that we're building, the, thing that the life that we're constructing around us is the end in itself. It's not a means to a greater end. It's not a, it's not a means to glorify God or serve his people. It's just, a, it's just an end in and of itself. And then we have to be very mindful of the fact that we live in a day and an age in a society where sin is not just common, but it's being normalized. So even, even some of the, the values and mores that would guide just sort of common morality in, a, in, in the culture and in, in, in the neighborhood and in the schools and the business places that we operate in um, are completely changed and, and are completely different now. And what, what was once considered taboo or sinful or commonly agreed upon to be you know, bad or unhealthy or, or whatever is, is, not, is not just normalized, not just acceptable, but it's even praised. It's even, it's even honored and held up as, as noble. And, and if it, you call a sin a sin, it's hate speech. That's right. So it's, the table's been completely turned. And so we live in a, a world where there's tons of pressure on us as believers to not get caught up, not get sucked in, not have our thinking sort of leveled out and watered down to stand for truth, to stand and speak the truth, but yet do it in a way that is loving and gracious. That do it in a way that recognizes that all men were created in the image of God and that our job is not to fix people but to proclaim the gospel. So it's an enormous challenge that we face as believers living out life in a fallen world and in particular in a secular society. Well, fortunately, the narrative doesn't end there. We go next to Seth, and Seth, we are told, is born and has a son, and then people began to walk with God, call upon the name of the Lord. So we'll look at Seth next week, and we'll kind of use that as our introduction, our segue into chapter 5. Any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you could, you could, you could, you know, say that there's possibility of that. But I think you also have to. There's a caution in that as well because, I mean, I think that there are many people who are faithful and and seek to be faithful parents and and and, and their kids go go astray. So I mean, who knows? Who knows what happened there? But um, you know, we have to assume that. Um, what it, what we do know for sure is that at some point everyone becomes responsible for their own decisions. And 
So yeah, I mean, the, but the influence, yeah, like you said, the influence of, of Adam and Eve seemed to be there with other children. You have to hope that that had something to do with um, that redeeming influence and in that, that home and that family. It's very hard to speculate on that stuff. It's really hard to relate to the whole narrative because you're talking about, you're talking about multiple centuries of time that, that this family and these generations are kind of unfolding. It's really, it's really, when you really start thinking about what that could possibly look like, you know, we're, we're thinking in terms of 70, 80, 90 years of time for, you know, and this is, we're talking 900 years of a family to perpetuate. Um, so it's hard to draw too many comparisons in that regard. Any other comments before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray.